0: This episode was recorded in 2021. Hello and welcome to Returnity. I'm Letty Gordon-Furs, founder of The Springback Guide. Every week we'll be diving into the pressing need for better support on women's back-to-work journeys after maternity leave you'll hear real-life stories from working mums where motherhood has transformed their careers and get an inside look at the industry leaders at the forefront of innovating in this space. Ready? Let's go. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much for joining me. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. I ask all my guests, where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? So
1: I am in Tower Hamlets, London, Before you get some imaginary idea of a glamorous house, it's an 80s townhouse, but it is right by the River Thames. And so I can see the other side of the river, I can see Greenwich out of my window. I can't actually see the river from this room, but I can from most of our house. And I'm in our study slash spare room.
0: Tell me about your immediate family unit, who's in it?
1: So I'm married to Chris, Chris and Christine, very twee. Apparently, it's a bad sign. It means that we like agreement too much and can't handle conflict. But actually, I think we do okay. And we have three children, Celia, who's 11, Vivian, who is nine, and Lucy, who is seven. We have a COVID cliche puppy called Monty, who is six months. So tell me, what did you do pre-babies? I did a degree in politics, and then I went and worked in politics for a bit. And then I went into public affairs and PR and I worked in America, in Washington, DC for a few years, in Canada for a few months, in Toronto. And then I went to an ad agency and I was there six or seven years and I was director of communications. But the best thing about that job was I ran out international research projects into what was cool, big trends, what was going on in loads of different markets and reported the findings to clients and other offices and agencies around the world.
0: So you have to let me in on a, a trend then. Is there a particular memorable trend? We did what 20-somethings at the time were into, what 30-somethings were into.
1: iPhones were arriving for the first time, so changing relationships with our mobile phones. And basically then we'd go and share those with brands like Mars and G and people and talk about how they were going to use those insights in their advertising and marketing campaigns. I just loved it. It was probably my ideal job.
0: Okay. So that's pre-baby. So I assume that somewhere into the mix, you met your husband and were you, I know that you traveled a lot, but were you London based? Yeah.
1: So we were both London based and we met in a bar in London. So we were together for a
0: few years while I was working there. And then I had a baby. And then what happened? How was your journey back to work? Yeah, it was rocky. I think it'd be fair to say. So I had a really brilliant boss. The boss who was there when I went off maternity
1: leave, had three kids of his own and was a really sage source of advice, very supportive. But while I was on maternity leave, he moved to the company he's now at. And a new person arrived who was less supportive, shall we say, who welcomed me back after six months with the suggestion that I went to three days a week for my five days a week, that I didn't manage my team anymore because he would be doing that and perhaps not manage any research because that was quite a big job for somebody who was so small a baby. And so uh, perhaps I could do his PR for him instead of my old job.
0: So yeah. basically, here's a big demotion, but I'm pretending like I'm being very kind to you. It was
1: dressed up as a consideration for the fact that my priorities would have changed. But my priorities hadn't changed. I really wanted to get back to my job. I don't think I was very realistic, to be fair about my limitations in terms of travel and those things like the first six months of motherhood are quite wild let's face it you don't really know where you are but I did know that I wanted to go back and I've spent more years of my life in meeting rooms in corporate environments than I have one-on-one parenting and so in some ways I needed the balance of going back to work because it was a big part of my identity it was a big part of what I knew how to do where with my new child I knew a bit but not a lot So it was a real blow. My husband had taken voluntary redundancy after 18 years of starting a business. And so really we were depending on my income. So I panicked and got another job at a research agency, which was a really bad choice for me. I'd gone from this big world job where I was always at conferences and events and international meetings and meeting loads of people to a really research heavy agency where I was in the office looking at data sets in a very insular team. And it was terrible for me. It was a really bad environment. It was very full on hours heavy. There was a lot of conflict in the organization. Don't want to get sued, but there was just quite a lot going on. And so it really didn't suit me very well and was a really difficult transition.
0: Yeah. And as somebody who, let's face it, is quite clearly a raging extrovert, it must have been quite a (laughs) massive contrast to then go to like research. This was much more data-driven and survey-driven.
1: And when they hired me, they said they wanted to do the kind of research that I really loved and that's why they were hiring me. But in reality, there just wasn't the work to do in that. So really, they were like, oh, you can run the global Dell tracker, which was tracking people's responses to Dell computers all over the world in 168 slide documents. So it was a disastrous choice. I mean, there's no question about it.
0: (laughs) That sounds so tedious.
1: (laughs) And I was terrible at it as well. I mean, everything about it was terrible.
0: Oh, there's nothing worse as well than just knowing that you're doing a bad job as well. So because people handle pregnancy differently, were you aware that, oh, things are changing or I might have to think about how I'm going to come back to work, etc.? Was pregnancy a time where you were doing that or were you just carrying on? No,
1: I was fantastically moronic about the whole thing. I just barged on, doing my job. I had the baby at UCL and I remember running through the double doors for appointments and then being so irritated that I had to wait for ages for the appointment, just sitting there, you know, punching my blackberry. Basically just carried on with life like this baby was going to fit in like the dog has done. And So I was massively naive about it, which was really stupid. And I think that was part of the reason that I wrote the book was because I just felt that if I'd read something like my book, I perhaps would have grasped the enormity of the change a little bit sooner and perhaps cope with it a bit better.
0: It's really funny that you say that because the number of women I've spoken to whilst doing this podcast have said, why doesn't anybody tell you? And it's a question that I've really grappled with and I'm not quite sure what the answer is. So I ask people this and there's a couple of different things. One is that you want to be
1: positive and supportive of people. So if I went around going, don't have babies, ladies, because it's going to ruin your career, <laughs> that would be very unsupportive. And that isn't what I think. Obviously, I'm taking the piss out myself, but- it's really hard to say to somebody that this is going to be worth it. I promise you that it is. But there is going to be a time for which this feels unbelievably difficult. And when people are pregnant for the first time, they're so excited, they're so positive, they're so thrilled, they're a bit scared about the birth itself. And that's about as far as their brains can compute because it's such an enormous shift. I mean, a friend of mine, his wife just had a baby yesterday. And even last week, he's saying, "Christy, I just can't imagine it. You know, I can't imagine what's on the other side of this. So you can't really tell people. They have to get there themselves. I think reading about it, thinking about it is a good thing. But you don't want to be the kind of Debbie Downer. And, and it's awful when you are pregnant. People come up and go, ooh, your career is going down the toilet. Oh, this is going to be hard. You're like, oh, piss off. So I think it's very hard to say it. I think you want to be a role model. And I think we all want to believe that this is possible, that you can keep continuing with a great career and a baby. I think we all want to cling on to that hope, don't we?
0: Yeah, we absolutely do. And I think it was really funny what you're saying about not wanting to be a Debbie Downer, because on my sort of reflection from coming out the other side, is that the positive pollies annoyed me more, which was the kind of the books that I did read. Obviously, I had not read your book at this point. We're so perfect pregnant princess and then you have your beautiful newborn and life is never the same again. It's so wonderful. And that almost annoyed me more because I was just like, I, I need something in the middle. I need something yeah. that's just a genuine reflection on what it's like. And I can't find anything.
1: I think that it's hard to describe polarizations. It's hard to describe something that's two things at the same time. So like my friend who had the baby yesterday, like, in, in many ways, I'm so jealous. Like the best day of your life is giving birth it is the most memorable, the most exciting, the most really, the most joyful experience. But that achievement of having a baby, however you do it, however it comes, is amazing. And it's not without difficulties. And sometimes I compare it with climbing Kilimanjaro or something. It's like, it's painful and it's difficult and you have to train and it's struggle and You get setbacks and the weather can be bad, but it's still worth it when you get to the top. It is amazing. But I think it's really hard to describe that. This is worth it. It's Unbelievable! It's mind blowing in a way that I can't describe, but it also can be challenging in a
0: way that I can't describe. I think that's a really good metaphor for it, which is just there's a ton of struggle, and yes, the weather might be bad. It's a strange club; (laughs) you can't be a part of until you've done it.
1: And you notice that a neighbour of mine has a two year old, and it's really exciting. But she's also about to have her second baby, and she's a music teacher. So sometimes we take her daughter at the weekend when she's teaching lessons, and I took her down to the park on the weekend. And having a little child again. All these other mums were beaming at me and I was like, oh, I've forgotten that club. I'd forgotten that really small babies club where everyone else with a small baby is like your friend because you've got a small baby. And it's such a nice experience. It's so mutually supportive, but it's like almost you're on one side of that or the other. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. When you have the baby, you suddenly realise this invisible
0: network of women who know exactly where you are and how you feel. So take me back then. You managed to come back from the Mat Leave. It was absolutely not what you thought. Then took a job in a very introverted space doing data sets and Dell surveys and all sorts of fun things like that. So where was the kind of tipping point? What happened next?
1: I don't really know. I I think one of the other (laughs) things about having small children is that it all becomes very dark and hazy and you're very sleep deprived. So I don't remember a specific tipping point in the research agency, but I do remember thinking, how the hell do I get out of this? How do I make this stop? And I wanted to have another baby and I felt I couldn't just leave the job and get another job because I knew I wanted to have another baby. So I decided the best thing to do was just to get pregnant as soon as possible. A Really practical solution. To yeah, that it was honestly, <laughs> when they say you're really tired, that you, your brain goes into black and white thinking, like I could see no nuance, no complexity with this plan whatsoever. I was just like, if I just get pregnant, then I've got a legitimate reason to get the hell out of this awful place. So I got pregnant and had my second child the first time I found maternity leave quite challenging because I wanted to be back at the office because that was my safe, happy place. Second time, I was bloody delighted to be at home. And also, I was more experienced. So I quite enjoyed, really enjoyed my second maternity leave. Then I went back. And I think I basically picked up my coat and walked out six months after that with no job to go to and no plan. It was all quite dramatic. I was just like, okay, I'm just done. That's quite a big deal just to walk yeah, out. Yeah, I had lunch with a really amazing friend. She's an artist and she's also a coach. And I just, talked for 45 I mean, God love her. She didn't get a word in edgeways. I just sat and talked to her about how miserable I was for 45 minutes. And she just said, listen, go back to the office, get your coat and go home and don't go back again. And I thought she was absolutely unhinged. I was like, well, I can't possibly do that. And then on the way back to the office, I called Chris and he was like, you know what? You're so miserable. I think maybe you should. And I didn't. I went back to the office, stayed the afternoon, went in the morning and resigned. And it really was a great decision, but it was terrifying. I had no job to go to. I was the only income provider in our household. We had two really small children. And we also had a long-term booked trip to Thailand, but a couple of weeks later planned. So we basically just went, oh, bugger it. Let's just go. So we just got on a plane and went to Thailand. And we just had no income whatsoever and stayed in these amazing hotels and spent money and just laughed ourselves silly with that very anxious, nervous laughter where it's not that funny, but you don't really know what else to do. And then came back and thought, right, I better get a job. And actually, somebody had offered me a job when I was seven months pregnant with the second one. And he was starting a new consultancy. And he said, look, do you want to join? And so I said, yes. Yeah. So that became one of four co-founders. It didn't officially launch really until about a year after I'd left the research agency. So I did a bit of freelancing, but it really was quite a scary year, like literally like looking for fibers down the back of the sofa. So that was quite alarming. But then I started and it was a communications consultancy. Everyone was freelance. It was really flexible. It was very creative. There were lots of interesting people. So I went into there and then got pregnant with my third, which obviously she may listen to this, but wasn't entirely planned.
0: Why is the third one always an accident?
1: You're so knackered that you have no idea what's going on and you think you're never gonna have sex again and then apparently at some point you do and then you end up with a third baby. So literally I think I started in November and then by the sort of late spring I was not drinking at dinner and stuff and I remember one of my co founders going, Um like, you didn't seem to be drinking. Oh, yeah. So then I had her, took six months out, and then it worked really well because it was what we would now call a hybrid working model. We hadn't shared office space, but there was no timetable you know, could go in or not go into the office as suited you. As it was, I did go in quite a lot. We had childcare, obviously we had three kids knocking around, but it wasn't a full on 80 hours a week and it meant I could do days at home and stuff.
0: Just looking at the age gaps, all two years between them, there must have been quite a mental period where you always had at least two that were under five and therefore not qualified for free childcare, right?
1: Yeah, it was expensive. Um, very expensive. Yeah, it was very expensive, but I don't remember it. So if anybody's in that really <laughs> expensive phase, the only thing I can tell you is you won't remember it afterwards. And when you stop paying for that, you don't know where the money goes because this isn't like you go, oh, there's 15 grand we don't have to spend. Oh, it's in my account. It doesn't work like that. You find something else to spend it on. Very weird. So it was a real haze of inexperience. And also I felt like I spent six years of my life either pregnant or breastfeeding because I quite enjoyed it and found it quite comfortable. And I preferred sitting on my ass on the sofa feeding a baby rather than doing everything else. It's probably why I'm saying to reality TV. Um,
0: <laughs> And you said that they were a freelance consultancy, hybrid sort of model. So did you get any sort of maternity leave from them or how did it work?
1: Oh, no, I got the government freelancer, whatever it was, and they were very reluctant to give it to me. Yeah, (laughs) actually, it was a roller coaster a couple of years. I've got to tell you, it had some real downs, mostly. It was just really unsteady for quite a long time. And it's really important to acknowledge that because I think when you're going through that, you feel like you're the only person that's going through that financial chaos and you're the only person who feels like they're just never going to get out of this space that they're in. But when you interview people, which I do a lot and did a huge amount for the book, loads of people go through that. Not everybody, but almost everybody. Like nursery fees are so extortionate. Whether you're both working or one of you's working or neither of you's working, it is just such an intense financial period But it ends. And that's the thing to remember. It isn't the time that you're going to save for your pension or put money into ISAs, probably, or pay off any credit card debts. That's not what's going to happen in this phase. And that's okay.
0: I have to say, I found that remarkably reassuring in your book because I'm at this stage now. I'm six months pregnant and have a two year old. And thank you. And I was thinking, I don't really know how this is going to work. I just need to know that it will end. And you will
1: get through it. Those are the only two things I can definitely tell you. And it'll be a mess, probably. And it'll be a hodgepodge. And there'll be days when you're like, what am I doing? I've worked a week. And when I look at it, I've lost £30 once
0: I paid for childcare. There will be weeks like that. And you'll get through it all the same. Remarkably. Mm. So, just looking back then, what do you feel like your biggest misconception was about working motherhood? Did you even have a conception of what working motherhood would be like?
1: Well, around me were some really senior, glamorous women who had children who were much older than mine were at the time, and they made it look effortless, God love them. And so, I think I just assumed that I would have children, that I had a good enough job to pay for nannies, and I would just carry on with my job. And I think one of the ways that we run society now is we're so often disconnected from children if we have a professional sort of city job that we don't really understand how demanding they are. And I don't mean that in terms of needing feeding and nappy change. I mean, emotionally, you don't want to be out for 70 hours a week when you've got small children at home. You don't want to be flying to Paris for three days because you don't want to leave them behind. And I didn't
0: understand any of that going into it. I didn't understand the emotional magnetism of my own children. I think it's a really good point. You also make the really good point that if you're in a kind of city job, Children don't really exist other than no. when you're trying to get to work at the wrong time and you're thinking, why the bloody hell are so many school children on yeah, the tube why are they in my way? Yeah. <laughs> Which is terrible. I feel so bad saying that now because yeah. Yeah, obviously I feel completely differently. But at the time, they just don't really exist in the kind of city oh, world I mean, because they don't. I
1: remember leaving work to have lunch with my boss's old PA who's on maternity leave with second, had a two-year-old. And we went to college and I was like, why is this two-year-old such a dick? Genuinely my thought. It was throwing food, that heavy tantrums, couldn't have a conversation with her. I was like, her two-year-old's a bloody nightmare. Her two-year-old, I've got to tell you, is just every two-year-old on the planet, okay? But I just had no conception. I was the dick, clearly. But I didn't know that. I didn't have any concept. That's just how two-year-olds are. They don't suit restaurants.
0: Obviously, we've been in a pandemic, so I have never taken my two-year-old to a restaurant. But even the thought of no, it God. now just fills me with fear. <laughs> yeah. I
1: mean, she's literally eye hype for every table, sweeping stuff onto the floor, throwing stuff. You know, it was a disaster. Uh, and you know that now, but, you, you know, I didn't know that before.
0: So you've got your government statutory freelance pay, which I can attest is woeful and managed to soldier on financially. So what happened then? It sounds like you were quite happy there. So did you go back? I was happy there in loads of
1: ways. But over time, I just became more independent and I wanted to do slightly different things. And so when I wrote the book, which is summer of 2018, I resigned from Jericho. I just felt that that was becoming too much. So I stepped back and the book came out. And it was quite a sort of mind-blowing experience in many ways because Eleanor Mills, who was the editor of the Sunday Times magazine, I met her and she was really, really interested in the book. And she put it on the cover. And so it kind of changed my life a bit overnight, because I sort of went from being a person who would experienced these things and thought about them to somebody talking about them, being asked about them, speaking about them, hosting events, being invited to speak at events and stuff. So my life changed quite dramatically at that moment.
0: And this is what I was going to ask you about. So obviously, book deals don't really just come out of thin air. And you say that you weren't that well known. So how did that book deal come about? Because that's quite a big deal.
1: Yeah, it was. So I'd written before, I'd written a column for Management Today magazine about being pregnant. And I'd written quite a lot about parenting and work and done a lot of interviews for them and been on the cover. And I was talking to a colleague of mine, another co-founder, and he's a former newspaper editor. And he said, I think this is a book and I think you should write a book proposal and I was like yeah yeah yeah. and he said no I really think you should so I wrote one I sent it to him and actually he forwarded it on to somebody else that he knew and that led to a conversation which led to the book so I was unbelievably lucky and it happened without a lot of the stress and pain that I know a lot of people go to get published so please don't hate me if that's you I'm really really sorry <laughs> I apologise for You
0: know, I think hate hate is gonna hate. I don't know, I think fair enough. It doesn't just land there. It's because people obviously really liked what you were saying, thought it was unique and saw a massive opportunity in there. The one thing which I would say as a thought is that
1: everything I've ever done that's really changed my life, I've done for free. So the Management Today stuff, I almost entirely did for free. I did interviews for free. I wrote for free on top of my regular job. And lots of people would tell you not to do that. There are lots of journalists who say you shouldn't write for free because it undermines other journalists. I understand that now. I didn't even know that at the time. When you have something inside you that you want to do, doing it for free can be a way of changing your life. And if I'd have been expected to pay those Management Today columns, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have led to the book deal. So another way of looking at it, it was that I worked for free for a few years and then eventually got a book deal.
0: Sorry to interrupt. Are you a woman on a career comeback journey or a business looking to empower your female employees during their returnities? Well, let me introduce you to the Springback Guide, a revolutionary digital coaching product that's changing the game for women and businesses alike. Our Springback Guide is designed to help women go back to work feeling happy and confident. It's like having a personal coach right on your phone, guiding you every step of the way. Plus, now here's the real game changer it costs just a fraction of the price of conventional coaching. No more time consuming and expensive coaching sessions. With Springback Guide, we're putting the power in your hands, right where it belongs. We're not just changing the game, we're changing the way women and businesses consider reternity. So, if you're looking to make your career comeback with confidence, or if you're a business looking to empower your female workforce and want to find out more, visit us at springbackguide.com or follow us on Instagram at springbackguide and join the revolution today. I've heard from lots of people that actually just going through the process of writing a book is like giving birth in itself. Is that what you found as well?
1: Yeah. It was like this dawning conscious incompetence where I had an aspiration to be a great writer. I love great writing. I you know, love writers. And yet I'm still that person where I read what other people write and slightly hate them and totally love them and want to be them. So I think writing is hard and it's hard when you know you're competing with people who just do this full-time and have done it full-time as a job.
0: There must be a whole other world around it as well, because you have to do press for the book, so you're doing interviews. like That must have just been the most crazy experience if you'd never done that before.
1: That bit I felt more comfortable with in a weird way because my book was published by Greentree, which is part of Bloomsbury. They had an amazing PR machine that did a really great job. It was bid for by three different newspapers, which ended up in the Sunday Times. And it got tons of coverage. So you are doing a lot of work for free, but you just, that's part of the deal, right? And you're lucky to have it because lots of books come out and they don't get any coverage. I was partly fortunate, I think, because that Sunday Times piece, once everyone has seen that, then you get invited on Women's Hour and all these other things. So I think the hard graft was the writing and the editing. That was brutal.
0: And the editing process as well. Yeah. That's another yeah. thing I've definitely heard is just brutal. Yeah. I felt like I
1: was frustrated by my limits and wanted more editorial input than was possible to get do you know what I mean I wanted to learn through the process and I think that's an unrealistic expectation of a publisher so when I was asked recently about writing another book I actually backed away from it you know it's like when you've had your house renovated and you just have just done it you remember how stressful it was I'm just not ready to go back there I might be when I've forgotten more but I'm not ready yet
0: (laughs) almost like having an accidental third child one might say very similar (laughs) (laughs) so 2018, so I'm just doing the maths in my head. So your mm. youngest, Lucy, must have been what for? You're not only writing a book, which you've never done before, and find writing, okay, but it's not your vocation per se. And you're dealing with a really small child still at home. So your support system must have been pretty impressive.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the things I struggle with sometimes when I write about this is that lots of the people that I interview have a very different life experience to me. I was raised by a 1970s feminist mother and her advice was what a lot of feminists now advise other women or people, but women particularly, is to marry really well. So I married Chris and we have always parented in a very equal way. I've never felt like it was my responsibility. He probably did a lot more in the early years than I did. I feel that if I left home tomorrow, that possibly wouldn't be ideal, but the house would continue to run. The children would be, you know, cared for and fine. So we have quite a balanced approach to the parenting. And I think that has saved me slash us.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to clarify marry well, because in my head, I (laughs) typically think of marry well, a.k.a. marry rich. But you actually mean marry just a half decent human being. I would say marry
1: a wholly decent human being. I think you want to marry somebody who wants to be equal in the roles of life with you. And it's fine to have different skills and different strengths, but not that one of you is exposed and vulnerable and paying a higher price for your family setup or whatever it is you choose to do than the other. So, you want to seek equal commitment if you possibly can and strive to create that equal commitment and have conversations about it and adjust it so that it works for you. On the marrying rich, it's really interesting. There's some research that shows that women who are married to very rich men are more likely to suffer professionally because the more hours that the male partner in a heterosexual relationship works, the fewer hours quite often the woman is able to work. So, if he works 100 hours a week at Goldman Sachs, it's very difficult then for the woman to continue her career. And from my mother's perspective, as somebody who'd watched a lot of her friends become financially vulnerable when men left them, that might be okay, as long as you don't break up. But if you break up, you could be massively financially vulnerable and responsible for your children. And that was something my mother really didn't want for her daughters.
0: And it's something that, again, I guess, naively, one doesn't really think about when you're in your early 30s and friends are getting engaged or whatever. And it was something that was definitely... Made painfully aware to me by the book because I was thinking, oh, yeah, some of these people that I know who are getting married might actually also get divorced, (laughs) which I know sounds ridiculous, but you don't think about it.
1: No, my mother had been divorced and so had my father. So both on the second marriage. So so I was brought up to think about it. And one of my mother's really clear messages was that you have to have the wherewithal to earn your own money to support yourself and your children if you have them. And I've got two sisters and all of us have followed that learning quite seriously, I guess. On the marrying rich, well, it can be great if it's the person for you and you've got equality and it's a brilliant relationship. It doesn't matter. But if... That's the goal. And if that potentially leaves you vulnerable down the road, then you really need to think about your own independence and also what you would want for your children. And I think my mother just saw quite a lot of her friends break up with men from a more traditional era where women didn't necessarily have qualifications or skills or had given up their careers when the children were born who just, you know, really lived very difficult lives as a result.
0: And I can't even imagine what that would be like. That's something that I think a lot about when I think about the previous generation, where I think there's lots and lots of people who weren't qualified because they had babies the summer they graduated or if they even went to university, etc. And of course, the era was different then, so not so many people went to university and it was fine. But I think that's a really relevant point, which is just that your children grow up and then perhaps you get divorced and then what? That must have been so hard starting afresh and understanding where your identity's at.
1: But the other thing to bear in mind is you don't ever want to be in a relationship that's dysfunctional for any reason and feel you can't leave because you can't survive financially outside of it.
0: And I think it still exists today. I think perhaps as you talk about so eloquently in the book, people almost have the expectations of the old generation, but also these new set of expectations, which is that the definition of having it all is being able to carry on with your full-time job, have an absolute shit ton of help and to not feel like you're ever losing out emotionally. And I think that's the space that people are really missing at the moment, which is that emotional pull, which is what you talked about earlier.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that you talk about is what is having it all. And I think for me, it's the choice. It's the choice whether you want to work full-time, part-time, some of the time how you split things in your household, whether you ramp up or ramp down, whether you have more children. I think having it all is the ability, the confidence and the resources to make choices. And I think as soon as you get into a place where you can't make choices, then things are much harder.
0: And I think that's what modern feminism should really be about, which is choice. And the fact that there's a lot of structural inequality and structural sexism makes it very difficult for a lot of women to have the choices that they want. That's something that is just woefully neglected by our politicians. Sorry, but I think it is.
1: <laughs> I think it is as well. But in an ideal world, I think families, households, units, parents would have choices and the men would have more choices as well. And I think the way
0: that we
1: have evolved from a sort of male breadwinner model to this one and a half model where women had lesser secondary jobs to earn an income. And then we go into flexible work and then the hours culture for a lot of people is out of control. I think that's untidy. I think if we could keep jobs to a more manageable length where you could do your job, And then still care and run a household, look after parents, look after children, do hobbies, do whatever else you want to do. That would be ideal. But we seem to be further away
0: from that than ever. I couldn't agree more. And that's why, (laughs) hopefully, Christine, at some point, you'll write a second book. So once the book was out, what Mm. happened then? So when the book came out, I went back
1: to what I was good at, which was I was doing a combination of research projects and then doing quite a lot of speaking on the subjects around the book. So events and panels and all that sort of stuff. Really enjoyed that. And last March, International Women's Day always leads to loads and loads of events. And then, of course, it all came to a standstill. Exactly, a year ago. And so I was sort of back to that walking out of my job when I was just like, oh, this is exciting. Now what do we do? And I have worked for a long time with a brand and digital expert. And he and I were speaking in one of his projects. It wasn't cancelled, but part of it was paused. And so he was like, look, I've got a bit of time. And I've been thinking for a while that you should have a vlog. Why don't you try? And I was like, well, to be honest, I've got bugger all else to do. So we basically started it. And in my mind, I thought it might run for six weeks because that's how long we were told lockdown was going to be. And I thought maybe it'll be not like a diary almost of lockdown. And so just started making it on an iPhone and it's been a brilliant thing. I've been doing it for a year now and it's given me incredible structure to the week and amazing connections out to people that I've worked with before and people that I've never worked with to be able to talk about the stuff that I love, which is where basically where work crashes into life and all the big subjects that we've had this year around stress and burnout and the lack of boundaries between home and work and what we're going to do next with hybrid work and blended work and remote work. So just to explore all of those subjects, it's been a really exciting and interesting project but you know like I said about the management today thing it's one of those where you start something for free because it's the right thing to do and you just do it having no idea where it's going to lead and actually it's been brilliant.
0: I do think there's a really good test to prove almost how passionate you are about it because you would never work for free about something that you just simply didn't care about.
1: I think it's a good way to try things and then you see what response they get and then if they don't get a response that's fine you can quietly give up and nobody's <laughs> doing as you did them and if they get a response then maybe you've discovered something about yourself or the market or where you sit in the world so I think just doing experiments and just trialing stuff and seeing what happens
0: is really valuable and something we sometimes overlook. Definitely. But to do vlogs, you're really putting yourself out there. Also, we're in a very visual space at the moment yeah. because that's what media is like. So, what has that been like? And do you look back at your first vlogs now and think, oh, my God. Yes,
1: <laughs> we watched one this morning because it's exactly a year since we started watching it. I was like, turn it so off, funny. it's terrible. Yeah, you do. And it is a real learning curve. And I remember when I started, Philippe going, you've got to buy lights. And going, oh, it's fine. What are you on about? You've got to buy a mic. Oh, it's fine. And now I can hear it and I can see it. It is really visual and that is alarming. But I think with lockdown, it's, I mean, if you've watched any of them, you'll know that I love clothes. So it's given me a bit of an outlet to like make sure that I'm not in my yoga kit five days a week. It's great, <laughs> I, I love think, it.
0: I think you have my dream job. So you said that before you started Writing the book, you'd voiced the idea to a few friends who'd been a bit like, Oh my God, you're going to get like big yeah, backlash yeah, on this. True, yeah. And Philippe always says that if you don't have trolls, then you've got no profile. <laughs>
1: Um, and I don't have many trolls so I guess I've got no profile but I quite like that as an idea so whenever I write for The Telegraph these really aggressive men usually called John and David and George pile on (laughs) and say that women should have babies and stay at home with them and and bake scones and how dare I express an opinion and I kind of love it I I just don't care at all the other thing is I don't provoke trolls at all, but I have to say that. I did have a slight go at one last week. He was saying his wife was always on her phone and I was like, maybe she's avoiding you. The- <laughs> <laughs> it had to be deleted by the moderator, so I don't know what he thought, but I assume he didn't agree.
0: <laughs> what a charming gentleman as well. But I think you just have to enjoy it, don't you? I really like what you said about if you don't have trolls then you have no profile. I just think it allows you to turn a potential negative into a potential positive and just go, okay, so
1: that's the price that you pay. I mean, I say that as someone, like I say, who hasn't had a major part. And I don't mean to diminish those people who've had really terrible social media experiences because I know it can be really horrendous. But for me, at the moment, it's pretty pleasant. If that changes, I'll let you know.
0: Did you care about what people thought when you were younger? Yeah, I think so. But I think I've always been quite a Marmite
1: character. So I've always grown up with the view that there are just some people who don't like me. And so I think I'm sort of at
0: peace with that. I do wonder sometimes, because I certainly care a lot less now than I mm. did. 10 years ago. So I just wondered if that continues on this amazing growth curve or whether it I think stops. it does. And I think children help with that because I think they give you a perspective on what
1: matters. And so I think probably I am more confident with that. And also I think I'm more at ease with the idea that there are quite a lot of people that I don't like. And so it's perfectly logical that there are people who won't like me. And that's fine, isn't it? And I don't need to please all the people all the time.
0: I don't mm. want to. that would be very dull. <laughs> also just uh, unbelievably time-consuming. So it sounds like your last 10 years were just wild. I mean, if we think about the number of things that we've just talked about, it's extraordinary. So where do you see the next 10 years going?
1: Well, it'd be quite nice if it was a bit more stable, wouldn't it?
0: I think, <laughs>
1: I think it maybe. <laughs> would to- it, though? Would it, though? I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. So I think that I feel... This sort of sense that I've come a huge way in establishing some independence in terms of being able to do things that I really love nearly all of the time professionally. So things I do now are either I go into organisations and interview loads of people and then talk to them about what I've heard and how they could address that on work and life, which I love. Or I do research projects where I go and find out about issues and report back. Or a bit of what I do is write in newspapers or magazines. So all those things are things that I really love doing. And so if I was able to continue doing those things, that would be amazing. And if there could be more stability in terms of not having these dramatic highs and lows, that would be great. But I guess we just don't know where the economy is going. We just don't know, do we? So I find it very hard to predict. But in 10 years' time, my youngest will be 17, so she'll be almost ready to leave home. And I always think it's a really exciting moment because you can change your life again and do something different. So who knows?
0: If you said that Lucy will be 17 by then, mm. what would you like them to think of you once they get to that age?
1: I want them to think that we as a unit are absolutely stable and dependable and here for them and that they don't need to think about it a lot. I want them to be able to go into the world and enjoy and be good at the things that interest them and I don't want to bully them into being brilliantly academic and I just I don't want to crush what they're interested in. I want to give them the confidence to go and do stuff they're interested in, but also the realisation that they're going to have to work quite hard and compete to be able to do it.
0: I don't have any idea how to do any of those things, but that is my goal. I think it's a pretty good goal. And we're running out of time. I could literally, Karen, talking to you for the rest of the afternoon. A lot of women who will be listening to this might be pregnant or planning that first or even second return to work. So obviously you have a giant book full of advice. But is there a particular piece of advice that you want to leave any mums who might be concerned with going back to work with?
1: I would say keep your choices open. So it's a really boring answer. But don't take out a massive mortgage, a massive car loan. Don't run up debts. Don't worry about what the nursery looks like. Don't buy a fancy cot. Get secondhand clothes, a secondhand bike. Just don't overextend yourself. Get a childminder, not a nanny, or a nursery. We'll do whatever's most cost effective to give yourself choices and to be able to scale up and scale down the amount of work you do versus the amount of parenting you do for the next. And this is a scary bit. 18 or 20 years. And don't think about it in terms of this three months and that three months. And when they're two, then I'll get free childcare and then we'll be fine because it never bloody ends. And I mean that in the best possible way, as well as the hard stuff. It's like when they start school, they suddenly finish at 3 30 in the afternoon and you've got to deal with that. So it's constant adjustment a constant evolution. And you just want to be able to flux at all points.
0: And I think that slightly keeping up with the Joneses attitude, I think Stop is that. just the death
1: of joy. Yeah. yeah. You, you do not need the an espresso coffee machine. You really bloody don't. Put your money back in the bank account. You're going to need it for other stuff. Honestly, all that Sherry nonsense. Don't bother. Unfollow your Instagram influencers who are making you spend a fortune on aluminium stretchy taps or something. Just honestly, just live really conservatively because there will be time later for all those things, but it doesn't all have to be now. Absolutely.
0: And look, Christy, I know that you're everywhere, but there are any social media things that you want to shout about. Obviously your vlog. Please give us all the details.
1: So Armstrongandpartners.co.uk is my website and you can just sign up for my newsletter and my vlog. And as you say, it is funny, like I promise. Or LinkedIn is really good. Love a bit of LinkedIn and the vlogs on there every week, bit of Twitter, I'm Calmstrong LDN. If you want me to come and talk to you company, if you're struggling with your boss's boss, the CEO. If you work at Goldman Sachs, call me. I'll pop over. Let's sort it out.
0: <laughs> I'll pop over. I love it. Okay, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I've literally been smiling the whole way through this podcast, so my cheeks actually hurt a little bit. Thank you for asking such lovely questions. You made it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Reternity. We hope you found the discussion inspiring and informative. RETURNITY is about celebrating and supporting women on their back-to-work journeys. And speaking of support, don't forget about the Springback Guide. It's the innovative and cost-effective solution for women and businesses alike. Empower yourself or your female workforce with confidence and success on the road to RETURNITY. To learn more about the Springback Guide and how it's changing the way we approach women's return to work, visit springbackguide.com. See you next week.